Hey everybody, this is Kale Clark. Thanks for joining me once again today for The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app as we motor through the letter from St. Paul to the Romans and to us too, of course. It's for all people. It's the Word of God. And just before we get into the next section here, I want to just take you back to a couple of verses, point something out here. If you want to open up your Bible to Romans chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 here. So let's check this out together. Paul writes, When Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse, or perhaps excuse them. Well, excuse me, but uh, this is sometimes uh, what can happen with our conscience. And what he's talking about there, and we mentioned this a little bit before in the last episode, is the concept that the Gentiles can, in a sense, know the commandments, know the Ten Commandments, that is, through the dictates of their conscience alone. Why is that? Well, as the Catechism teaches, the Church tells us that When it comes to natural law, and remember the Gentiles, the pagans, they don't have the word of God. They don't have the special revelation from God that Israel had. They still did have God speaking to them through their conscience. And the content of that is exactly the same as what you would see in the Ten Commandments. So when the Gentiles are thinking about committing some particular sin that's prohibited by the commandments, like adultery, their conscience should be screaming at them in essence. But remember, like we talked about before, conscience means with science, with knowledge, con science. Conscience needs to be strengthened. Conscience needs to be educated. Conscience needs to be conformed with the truth. And what can happen to us as we go through life is if we disobey our conscience when it's telling us to do something or not to do something, that conscience can become blunted. And this is what scripture refers to as the hardness of heart, like what happened to Pharaoh in the, in the Exodus. And you can refer to the Exodus series that we did on the Faith Explained program for more on this. But he just simply would not yield to God, and his heart became ever harder. And it's not so much his heart as his conscience. And of course, scripture uses the heart to speak of the seat of the will, the intellect, the emotions, all of that stuff that, that that's part of our soul. And, and Your conscience is the message from eternity to your soul. The Aboriginal Vicar of Christ, as Cardinal Newman said, when I was five years old, I had had an experience with my conscience, and I've never forgotten this. This has been seared into my memory. I'd started school, and I kind of had my first experience with disobeying my conscience, with committing a sin. And what had happened was, well, I I became kind of covetous of something that my classmate Jamie had. Now, he had this pencil that had a monkey on the top of it. The monkey kind of covered the eraser part of the pencil, and I just thought it was really cool, and I just became obsessed over this. I had to have it. And so I I concocted a plan. I was going to steal Jamie's pencil. I know, I know, reprehensible, absolutely terrible, and and I'm just a trash human being. I know that. I know that. So so as this five-year-old kid, so I decided I would do this. I'd never done anything like this before, and my conscience was absolutely screaming at me, don't do it, don't do it, this is theft, this is stealing. 
This is how, again, the, the Ten Commandments are, are in your conscience. But I suppressed it. I decided that, that I wanted this more than I wanted to obey my conscience. And so I took it. And then Jamie you know, figured out it was missing. He starts crying. He complains to the teacher. Somebody took my pencil. The teacher sits the class down and says, all right, somebody needs to fess up here. Who's got Jamie's pencil? And I thought, man, you know, I... I is the teacher going to find me out? And I, I had it hidden in my desk and I didn't say anything. I, I kind of got away with it. Or so I thought. I just felt so guilty. I couldn't even enjoy the pencil because I knew I'd taken it. Kind of ruined Jamie's life at that point. And I can't remember whether I slipped it back into his desk or not. I certainly hope I did. But don't worry, folks. I've, I've confessed that sin and, and hopefully I've reformed myself. I haven't gone on to a, to a habit of, I don't know, taking relevant radio pens from... Uh, the office supply closet or notepads and taking them home with me, paper clips, none of that stuff. So we've got it. We've got to, we've got to confess our sins. We've got to uh, get our conscience in conforming with the truth. And, and I always thought also, it was really interesting to me when I was coming back into the Catholic church and just kind of relearning the faith a few years ago that the church teaches, and this always kind of freak some people out. The church teaches that you have to obey your conscience even when your conscience is wrong. And that 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 just kind of blows people away because the, the sacredness of, of the, the encounter with your conscience in your soul. But it also speaks to the importance, again, of educating your, your conscience in accord with the truth. Formation is really, really important. And we can't we, we 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 can't absolve ourselves of this responsibility. But what happens to people is when they when they make a habit of of pushing down their conscience and, and doing the opposite of what their conscience is telling them, that's when they become very calloused in their conscience, hardness of heart, as Scripture calls it, and it becomes a lot easier to commit sins in the future. But the first time you commit a sin like that, like kind of like what happened to me when I was five years old. It's extremely difficult. It gets easier as you keep committing it. And this is why it's not a guarantee that you'll ever come back to God in the end. Because some people never will. They say, I'm going to repent later. You can't bank on that. Because you, you, you might not want to go back to God. And, and then you never know when your last day is, is going to arrive. And so, very important to keep short accounts and educate your conscience, but always be in touch with it. And so this is a, an important argument that Paul is making here, that the Gentiles, if they're obedient to their conscience, they can, in a sense, find themselves in a better place than those who know the law of God but are disobedient to it. And that's where Paul turns in the next little section here. So let's uh, skip ahead now to the next little uh, piece in Romans, which begins at verse 17 and goes through verse 29. Let's read it together. So Paul writes, Now if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of God and know his will and are able to discern what is important since you are instructed from the law, and if you are confident that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those in darkness, that you are a trainer of the foolish and teacher of the simple, because in the law you have the formulation of knowledge and truth, then you who teach another, are you failing to teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast of the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For 
As it is written, because of you, the name of God is reviled among the Gentiles. Circumcision, to be sure, has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Again, if an uncircumcised man keeps the precepts of the law, will he not be considered circumcised? Indeed, those who are physically uncircumcised but carry out the law will pass judgment on you with your written law and circumcision who break the law. One is not a Jew outwardly. True circumcision is not outward in the flesh. Rather, one is a Jew inwardly and circumcision is of the heart in the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from human beings, but from God. Okay, th this is an absolutely brilliant argument here from St. Paul. And again, you're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. It's our series on Romans. Can you handle the truth? And I'm your host, Cale Clark. And looking at verse 17 of chapter 2, once again, we see that Paul, who's having this imaginary conversation with a, with a dialogue partner, is in fact talking to an imaginary Jewish person. Now, it could be a Jewish Christian. We're not quite sure. But that's the perspective that he's, that he's going with here as he's going through Romans chapter 1 and 2. So that's why he says in verse 17, Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of God, etc., etc., uh, this is what he means by by all of that, and so what um, what he's doing here is saying that okay, there there can be a false pride here. He's really kind of taking a shot at those who are who are being hypocritical. Now, if there's one if there's one sin that Jesus railed against more than anything else, obviously he had a lot of compassion on people who were who were lost in, in sin and, and and couldn't see a way out and. and we're looking for God. We're looking for healing. We're looking for forgiveness. He had a lot of mercy on these people. But one thing Jesus could not stand is hypocrisy, especially among those who ought to have known better, the teachers of the law. And, and this is what Paul is railing against here, the hypocrisy of many of his fellow Jews. Now, don't forget, Paul himself is Jewish here. And he notes that there, there have been times in salvation history where Israel did not live up to what God wanted from them. One of the things that the Old Testament says is that in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, it shows that Israel was supposed to be a light to the world. Now, we know that, of course, the church is supposed to be a light to the world. And Jesus talks about this. You are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill that should not be hidden, that cannot be hidden. Don't put your light under a bushel basket, you know, let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, like the old song says. Well, that was true of the people of God in the Old Covenant as well. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, it says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. And then Isaiah 49, verse 6, it's maybe even more clear in Isaiah 49, verse 6, it says, I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So one of the reasons why God chose Israel was to be an example to the rest of the world. That when people saw the, the wondrous deeds that God did for Israel, saving them from slavery in Egypt, bringing them out through acts of power into, into the promised land and blessing them, that this would draw other people, the other nations, the Gentiles, to him. 
and say that this God of the Israelites is the true and living God. I want in on this. But very often Israel failed in their task to be that light to the nations. And this happened at various times throughout salvation history. And sometimes the Israelites found themselves fighting against God. God had to chasten them. God had to punish them. And this is why Paul says that the name of God has been blasphemed among the nations sometimes because of poor conduct on the part of his people. And this ought not to be. And so he kind of goes through this laundry list. Hey, you guys who, who know the law, do you live against the law? And there's this kind of laundry list of sins that he brings out here. You then who teach others, will you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Now, don't get me wrong here. Paul is not saying that the vast majority of Israelites were doing these things, but some people did. There's no question that some people did. Let's talk about well, let's talk about stealing in just a moment, but he gives the example of adultery. Now, it's one of the Ten Commandments, of course. You shall not commit adultery. But what about the woman who was caught in adultery in, in John chapter 8? That's at least one person who, who did it, and it was probably much more common than that. And, of course, uh, the, the penalty is being stoned to death under the Old Covenant. And she's caught in the act and brought to Jesus in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And the question is, what do we do with this woman? Well, first of all, where was her partner? Where, where was the guy who she was committing adultery with? The whole thing might have been a setup just meant to trap Jesus, which makes it even more evil. You're luring somebody into a mortal sin just to try to catch Jesus. Despicable, if that was the case. But but nonetheless, that, that's an example of that. This idea that um, idols, you who abhor idols, do, do you worship idols? Well, who would do that? But the, but the Israelites did do that from time to time. The classic example, of course, is right after they were freed from slavery in Egypt. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the Ten Commandments from God. One of, who, one of the commandments, of course, is no idols. You can only worship the one true and living God. Comes down from the mountain, and what does he find? Well, pretty much every commandment is being broken down below. Lots of debauchery is going on, and they're worshiping the statue that they've made this molten statue of the golden calf, which of course is one of the gods of Egypt, small g gods. It's Apis, it's a bull god. And the Israelites are essentially saying, Moses has been gone for a long time. He's been up on the mountain. He's probably never coming back. Maybe things weren't so bad in Egypt. Maybe we should go back to worshiping these idols because things are pretty tough right now. We're out in the wilderness. Things aren't looking good. And they failed to trust. And that's such, that is the great sin in many ways, failing to trust in God that really wounds God. And Moses is so angry when he sees this that he breaks the tablets. And God has to replace the tablets later on of the Ten Commandments. And so this is something from time to time that Israelites would do. Paul says, hey, do you rob temples? Okay, this kind of gets into this whole concept of stealing. Now, it's it's intriguing because the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, who was roughly contemporaneous with Jesus, lived about the same time, he talked about a situation in when this exact thing happened, temple robbing, if you will. And it's an intriguing um, account, actually. He talks about these guys who were involved with the temple in Jerusalem. So Josephus talks about this guy living in Jerusalem who professed to instruct men in the wisdom of the laws of Moses. He's an instructor in the law, if you will. 
he finds three other guys and they're, they're kind of people of bad character. And, and there's a rich woman named Fulvia. And Josephus says she was a woman of great dignity. She, she was actually a convert to Judaism. And she had a lot of gold and a lot of purple cloth. And purple cloth was really valuable in the ancient world. And uh, St. Paul, of course, runs into in the Acts of the Apostles, Lydia, who's a, who's a dealer in purple cloth and quite wealthy, and she becomes a convert. Anyway, so this woman, Fulvia, is convinced by these four guys to, hey, make a donation to the temple. Send some of your precious purple cloth and some of the gold that you've got. Send it to the temple, and we'll give you a tax receipt. It'll be a great deal. And so she does that, but when they get the stuff, they don't bring it to the temple. They just take it home, and they kind of just use it themselves. Spend the money, uh, buy themselves Lamborghinis, all that sort of thing. They're racing through the streets of Jerusalem, as it were. And this is just absolutely shameful. And Tiberius, the emperor, actually hears about this. And he's so angry at, at all this stuff that he actually kicks a, a lot of Jews out of, out of Rome because of this. Because Fulvia is a well-known person and her husband is really ticked off when he finds out, complains. And then Tiberius says, I'm going to kick all, all the Jews out of Rome because, because th this is absolutely wrong. So people have to suffer for the sins of a few guys. Um, and uh, th this is exactly the kind of thing that St. Paul is talking about. Not everybody did things like this, of course. But when you're a hypocrite, when you're breaking the very laws that you say that you uphold, um, you have no credibility anymore. And, and this is why he says in verse 24, in chapter 2, verse 24, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What's in the and by the way, he's he's quoting Isaiah 52, verse 5 from the Greek translation. This is called the Septuagint, Isaiah 52, verse 5, which Paul would have been very familiar with, because of the fact that there was so much corruption in Judah in the southern part of the kingdom. This is why God allowed the Babylonian exile to happen in 586 BC. The, the Babylonians came in, destroyed the temple. Jeremiah has to hide the Ark of the Covenant, and the, the Babylonians take the Jews into exile. And, and, and the whole thing is this God is allowing this to happen because of a punishment for all the wickedness that had been allowed to fester in Israel. So the name of God has been sort of blasphemed among the Gentiles. The, the Babylonians were saying, isn't your God strong enough to save you? Uh, why did he allow his own temple to be destroyed? Why is he allowing you guys to be brought into captivity? You can't be that much of a God. So this is a major chastisement of the people of God. And so Paul is really setting up this argument here to say that, and this is going to be the point of the whole thing, that the Gentiles and the Jews both have a huge problem with sin. And the answer to this problem, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and this is really what Romans is all about. We'll be back with much more on Romans in the next episode, but right now it's time for our Faith Explained question and answer mailbag segment. Got a good one today. Hang with me. Let's go for it right now. Okay, as we begin our Faith Explained mailbag Q&A segment, I want to remind you that you can send me your question. You can email me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app, formerly known as Twitter. My handle is at K-O-Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And this question comes to me via email 
from Derek in Carlsbad, California. And he says, hi, Kale. I really enjoy the Faith Explained program. Thank you very much. I've got a question about materialism. We know that materialism is a sin, but how can a Catholic properly use the material goods of this world? That's an excellent question, Derek. I really, really appreciate that. And I think ultimately the answer to that comes in a word called detachment. Detachment. Because we, we know that we clearly live in a hedonistic world in, in so many ways, especially in the West. We're surrounded with consumerism, materialism. Um, the whole idea is the one with the most toys in the end wins. And, and we, we want these things. We, we, they become little idols in our lives, if you will. And we're almost like fish. And it's interesting because the fish is an image for the early church. We're, we're almost like fish swimming amongst a lot of pollution, you know, polluted waters. It's all around us. And it's very hard for us not to, not to imbibe this, this idea of materialism. And so this is one of the reasons why it's so good for us to turn to the life of Jesus and ask, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? He talked a lot about this idea of poverty of spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that we, we can't own stuff and we can't use stuff because 99% of us live in the middle of the world and we have to figure out how to um, not be possessed by our possessions, but rather to uh, use them for the glory of God. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, also in Matthew's gospel, we can kind of fast forward to the so-called rich young ruler, the rich young man, Matthew 19, verse 24. Jesus said to him, you know, I, well, he didn't say this to him after he had left and the guy turned away and he wouldn't give up his possessions. Jesus said to the crowd, again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And it's not impossible. Nothing is impossible with God, as he goes on to say. God can do it, but we need detachment. We need poverty of spirit, and that's the only way we can we can get our minds right. We can't serve two masters. Jesus said we cannot serve God and mammon. We either hate the one and love the other or whatever the case may be. So how do we actually do this in practice? How do we actually practice detachment? Well, again, it's the imitation of Christ. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Jesus wasn't, I think we can surmise that he, he wasn't odd among his, his fellow residents of Nazareth. That's why people are so shocked when he begins his public ministry. They're like, wow, where's this guy getting his, this knowledge from? We've known this guy since he was a little kid. We, some of us played on the same soccer team as him. And he didn't, he didn't stand out in any kind of odd way. Um, some people say that even what's kind of interesting is that when he is crucified, his tunic, which is of one piece, it was, it was like kind of a nice garment. And whether Our Lady made it for him, that people speculate about that. But it was good, like so nice that the soldiers wanted it and they actually gambled for it. So he seems to have dressed well, uh, had a social life. He, he didn't renounce the things of the earth, but he did use them for the glory of God. For example, he, he would eat and drink with, with people, with sinners, and people gave him grief for that. He wasn't getting drunk or anything like that, but but he he would partake. He would partake. Um, but sometimes he didn't have the basic necessities of life. 
He says the son of man has no order to lay his head. He, um, he, get, he got hungry when he was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He sat down, he was tired, he was hungry. And he just kept going. He, he did the best he could with the circumstances that he had. And so what the bottom line is here is that we, we have to have our heart free. We can't climb up on the cross unless our heart is detached from everything of the earth. That's exactly what we, the way we have to think about it. And it's not just being detached from material goods. We have to be detached from even our health. There are times when we may not be in good health and we have to give that over to God. And we try to go to the doctor and take care of ourselves for sure. But there may be times when there's nothing we can do. We, we, we contract an illness and we have to be detached. We have to be detached in the use of our time and, and not say it's my time. No, it's not. It's God's time. And he's just, he's lent some of his time to you. Uh, even your reputation, your, your good name, may, may, you may be slandered by others. Uh, you may find yourself in a financial reversal. Your career may implode. We have to be detached from these things. And it's a great test of character to say, am I going to be just as content if I have these things or, or if I don't? One of the real questions here is, is what are our true needs? What are our needs? And it's very hard to, sometimes to determine what is the need and what is our greed. Um, we, know, we need to drive a car, but do I really need to drive a Bentley? You know, probably not. Um, it, it's hard to find answers to these questions. And I think this is really where spiritual direction really, really helps to submit some of these questions to a spiritual director because we're, we're a poor pilot for our own souls. And, and very often the things that we want to choose, we can kind of talk ourselves into, yeah, this is okay. But um, the virtue of detachment um, requires really radical honesty. So a few questions you can ask yourself. Are, are, are you really living abandonment? Are, are you ready to give up whatever God asks you for, uh, especially for the love of other people? Uh, your time, um, your schedule. Uh, maybe somebody else wants to watch something on TV other than the game that you want to watch or something like that. Do you tend to get worried a lot over material things, financial items? Um, if you don't get the promotion that you're looking for or the raise, are you, are you going to be detached with that? Are you going to are you going to be work just as hard? Uh, these are interesting questions that we can ask ourselves. We got to reflect on on how we're using the resources that God has given us, how we spend our money. Do you pray? Here's a good good exercise. Take your credit card statement and prayerfully go over it and ask yourself, was all of this spending justified or some of this because of vanity or caprice or just out and out greed? So some people say a, a real goal to keep in mind is elegant austerity. I really like that phrase, elegant austerity. We have what we need, but we, we don't kind of go for the excess. And Again, where that line is, it's a matter for prayer. It's a matter for spiritual direction. So there's so much we could say about this, but I, th I think it's a good question, uh, Derek, and uh, there's no way I could do this justice in just a few minutes, but hopefully this is helpful for you. Books could be written about this. You know, How do we deal with all these material things in the middle of the world in order to use them to help bring people, especially ourselves, safely into the kingdom of God? This is Cale Clark. You can send your question to me on the Faith Explained for the Q&A mailbag segment. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com. God bless you. We'll catch you in the next episode of the Faith Explained.